do, do we want to just go, go right into it? I sure. think we can jump into it, uh, yeah. Okay, so um, this is a, a very new and interesting type of episode for 27 because we have an actual guest with us. So we're really excited to introduce you all to Ellie Hutchinson. Uh, Ellie, do you want to give a quick uh, introduction to who you are, what you do, and why you're here? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure thing. Well, I'm here because Jean asked me to be. We were classmates back at USC at the yeah. design school at Roski. Um, I'm glad we've kept in touch. So a little about me. I am professionally a graphic designer, art director, type. I say type because I feel like all of us do a lot of things, it turns out, um, mm-hmm. especially when we start at small agencies where you have to wear a lot of hats. Uh, So that was definitely my experience where uh, right after college, I moved back to Washington, D.C., which is where I'm originally from, um, and immediately started working at a small advertising agency, the usual thing, Mm -hmm. doing everything from like buses to print to Mm -hmm. digital banner ads, the whole rigmarole. Um, And that's where I spent uh, the next three years. And during that time, I guess I had been working on this pet project off and on since graduating college. Sort of like that summer you spent after college looking for work, uh, I needed something to stay sane and to have a creative outlet. So I started my company, which is called Lorica Clothing. It is based on the premise of me designing clothes that look like armor. Um, And whenever people hear that, they're like, eyebrow raise, like, what does that mean? And it is literally what it sounds like. Um, I go to museums. I um, do a lot of research and studying in general to sort of understand the way that historical armor works and then to the best of my ability, try to replicate it on things like leggings, rash guards, dresses, like contemporary apparel, because I am a nerd. I have no better explanation. People are like, why armor? (laughs) And I'm like, I play D&D. I don't know what else to tell you. (laughs) And um, for the career trajectory, The advertising thing did what most agencies do to young creatives, which is Mm. grind you to dust. Yeah, totally agree (laughs) Um, on that, totally agree on that. It was one of those cultures where it was like, I hope you don't have plans on the weekend because you never know when we might need an extra pitch, you know what I mean? And I was just exhausted by that um, and also trying to do my business. And it just became the sort of thing where I couldn't be working to eight o'clock every night and also mm-hmm. be working from eight to three every night on my mm-hmm. side gig. Yeah. I know Gene knows the whole, the hustle. Fully sympathize with, you know, cause you want to do your best, but you're like, how much is my best? And then what is like, when I get paid for it, does that really actually meet up to it? Absolutely. And I definitely had that like agency experience um, where they expected the agency work to be your raison d'etre. Agency story, you can cut it if you want. But like, <laughs> I had a date with a guy who was, I thought was really attractive one Saturday. Mm-hmm. I was like yeah. pretty excited for it. And it turns out that that Saturday, we had to assemble a pitch. So every it was like all hands on deck kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was due Monday, la la la. And they wanted me the whole day, but I found that oftentimes a lot of my all hands on deck experiences were me waiting for my manager to give me something. He would want to kind of do things his way and had a hard time delegating at times. Mm-hmm. So it was just me literally at my desk waiting for nothing. And then as my date approached, I'm just like, yo, 
I'm going. Like, yeah. I don't care. I'm meeting a cute boy. So see ya. And I got reprimanded when I came back in on Monday. Oh they God. were like, how dare you prioritize yourself over the team? Like, it was just completely disrespectful of you. Yeah. I don't know what who you think you are, that kind of thing. And I was just like, no, 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 honey. This is my life. <laughs> I am the driver of this ship. Yeah. So excuse yourself um no, so i ended up <laughs> excusing myself um from the agency uh when lorca really took off so i did a kickstarter in 2017 it ended up raising in the realm of like 170 thousand dollars which is like yeah. far above my ten thousand dollar um goal it was like a week where it just kind of sat there like whenever you do a crowdfunding campaign um, unless you're a marketer supreme, if it's like your first go around, you send it out to all your friends and family mm -hmm. and you see all their names come up and you feel so supported and so great. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, it sort of stops coming in and you're like, mm -hmm. this is my network. Like this yeah. is the extent <laughs> yeah. and we're not there yet. What do yeah. I do? Um, so I kind of had to learn how to be my own PR person. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky because I basically had to send out one press release. I mean, I sent mm -hmm. out a couple, but only one of them had to land for it to like wildfire, right? Mm -hmm. So it got on a blog called, it's defunct now. So honestly, it has vanished <laughs> from my memory, but it's like Fashionable Geek or something that got eaten uh -huh. by like comicbook.com or something. Yeah. So they're no longer mm -hmm. alive. But at the time, it, it was, you know. <laughs> yeah, that sounds sad that at the time, four years ago, so long ago, it just got like picked up by this blog and this blog and this blog. And then like, uh, was it Parsec got it? And mm -hmm. it was just like, I felt fancy. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so at that point, I kind of was like, oh, this is viable. So mm -hmm. it wasn't an immediate leap. Like um, that was early 2017 and then mm -hmm. 2018, it just happened that my lease was coming up. I had specifically lived there to be close to this job. So I'm like, I'm a quit. <laughs> so I did um, mm -hmm. to do Lorca full time for the next uh, sort of like year and a half. It is very stressful to be self-employed. I'm sure y'all know, <laughs> um, especially with a physical product. So I eventually went back to agency land. I was actually poached by some random recruiter on LinkedIn and I didn't say no to the salary they offered me. <laughs> um, so here I am back to doing nine to five and side gig, but fortunately my new job is really great. Um, it actually respects work-life balance. Yeah. Um, and pays me a fair amount for this area. So I'm actually really happy with my current situation. Thank yeah, that's great. And you have the time and the flexibility to still keep right. working on Lorica. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, my days don't bleed into night at the day job. And um, I'm, yeah, I feel very lucky. <laughs> so I don't have a wonderful graceful transition out of this, <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's an old saying that like, good artists copy and great artists steal. What we wanted to talk about during this episode of the podcast was sort of the idea behind inspiration and the way that it differs from copying and plagiarism. Mm -hmm. Inspiration is a really big part of design. I think every designer has a folder or a, a bookmark tab that just is called inspiration or inspo or something. Uh, but there's so much controversy recently around just cultural appropriation and plagiarism and taking people's ideas. Um, and what we wanted to do on this episode with Ellie is kind of talk a little bit about our feelings about that and um, where we see the lines and where they kind of get fuzzy for mm -hmm. us too. Uh, so I'm Calvin. And I'm Jean. And I'm Ellie. And this is 27, a podcast about growing up. 
Uh, oh, and I guess as a little intro before we like really get talking, I'm sort of a, like a hobby designer who kind of became like a semi-designer. So I mm-hmm. wouldn't call myself like a full-fledged like creative creative. Mm-hmm. I'd say I, I dip my toe in. I know Jean would disagree. Yeah. I know but... you could tell that I'm already disagreeing. Calvin <laughs> is amazing at concept work. Like it in some moments it like sucks that like not all of Calvin's things get to make it to the final execution. He's totally like designer, you know, at least like concept designer. Yeah, really art director great. for sure. Yeah, he's so great. Thank you. I appreciate it. But I say that just to um, kind of preface the fact that I'll probably be taking more of a like a, a like additions and like moderation kind of role in this conversation, just because I want to make sure that uh, Jean and Ellie, who are more the creative and especially the both of you have like a lot of experience in like art history and kind of incorporating that into your work. So um, what are some things that you do to be inspired or like that just inspire you in general? Well, it's funny that you say art history because I feel like that is kind of my primary source of inspiration, not just for Lorica, but for a lot of things. And I feel like that was a really valuable part of our university education is that you're forced to take some art criticism and art uh, history lessons. It just gives you such a library to draw from because there are so many cultural symbols that are just embedded in our daily lives. And if you know those references, if you know where they came from, places, people, times, it just gives Mm -hmm. you such a rich context to imbue your work with more meaning. Mm -hmm. So I just find that history is the first place to go. And then you can identify all these trendy things. Mm -hmm. Like in illustration for a while, everything was Art Nouveau. It was just like mooka everywhere, you know what I mean? And then like, I remember in college, like the whole like woodblock printing aesthetic Mm -hmm. was really in, like everything was justified Mm -hmm. and like stacked like a brick. Um, So you can just immediately see where people are pulling these things from. And it also gives you a little bit of consolation like how are they thinking of these cool things and i'm not <laughs> yeah because they opened a textbook and they're like "Ooh, i'll take that i'll yeah. take that you know what i mean mm-hmm. my favorite one is seeing um the fruits being substitutes for vaginas mm. and it's like well in renaissance paintings and like way 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 back then right fruits were symbols of sexuality and virginity portraits would have males in like regal outfits and then a bowl of fruit next to it to symbolize like him conquering her virginity or something like that, like someone's chastity. It became this kind of like huge trend with a lot of uh, different companies using fruits as symbols to talk about women's sexuality. And it's like, that's not a new concept. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very, very old concept, like a very classic concept. So it's kind of great to know where some of the classics are coming from. And that way you can use it in your design and also know like when to break the rules for it. Right. And I think that Mm -hmm. breaking the rules point is super important because once you kind of know what a symbol means or what its archetype is. You can subvert Mm -hmm. it, right? And you can do the negative. And Mm -hmm. that gives your work such an extra range too. So you can kind of intentionally prey on people's existing feelings about things and (laughs) twist them to your own marketing desires. I like like that word you used. You're like, prey on it. I I wasn't going to go there, but Or, yeah, because culture is such like a rolling snowball of stuff, right? Where a lot of these um, like cultural ideas from art history are baked into us without us even recognizing a lot of the time. Like the fruit thing, when that started happening, it like pretty popularly in advertising, everybody kind of immediately got it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's also to the credit of the designer doing a good job, but like there is also this cultural miasma of stuff that we just understand kind of inherently. 
And then just I feel like in general, besides, you know, referencing the classics, I I love referencing the classics and Calvin hears me get excited when we talk about like Beyonce music videos. And I'm like, this looks like a Degas painting, like the mm-hmm. like reference to the ballerinas. He's like, oh mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but I also love referencing like non-designy things for design inspiration. And my favorite is looking at uh, dance choreographies because there has to be so much balance in all the elements that are moving and things that are happening. And especially when people talk about like the, the lines of dancers and it's, you know, looking at that to see like, what's the momentum, what's the flow and how do they really like make a design or make a choreography like reach its climax. I think that has been a very odd source of inspiration for me, but like one of the best because there's so much, so many things encompassed into it. And especially when it's like, when the choreography is focused on telling a story, then you can pick up that like, oh, it's like completing the performance and completing the move and letting it finish versus like stopping it at a certain point. Or also it's like the really tiny things that like make the choreography really tight. And then like using that concept of like the tiny things to put it into an animation design or into a logo design where it's like, these are the not noticeable things that really like bring in everything together. Like I think as a designer, you can't just be a designer. Like you have to be a human who participates in culture and just looks at the world. Like, as you say, it can come from design. It can come from dance. If you know, for me, it, like it comes from weird objects like armors or like I'll go to the Met and I'll be like, I love that pillar. That pillar's texture mm-hmm. is amazing. Um, and I'll use that kind of texture in like a design of a card or something like mm-hmm. that, where I just need some kind of uh, like a freeze motif or something. Gotta look at everything. Yeah, <laughs> be as yeah. well-rounded as possible and that you'll give you the deepest well to draw yeah. from. Ellie, for you, what attracted you to, like, what made you look at armor and say, like, yes, I'm inspired? I guess I'm really drawn to its symbolism as, like, an object of power and authority, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of traditionally belonged to men. Like, there aren't any extant armors that we can confidently attribute to women owners. It just Mm -hmm. wasn't wasn't a thing at the time. Mm -hmm. Appropriating that piece as this like symbol of male vigor Mm -hmm. for the female body is like really appealing to me. And especially Mm -hmm. when I adapt things like Henry VIII's armor, who was not known to be kind to women. I just get a kick in the, out of that. I like. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. I love the thought of him just like rolling in his grave at all these like hot babes wearing his armor. Like go to the grocery store, go to the club, whatever it may be. I just love subverting that trope. Mm-hmm. And they're just like gorgeous pieces too. Though, and the more yeah. I learn about it, the more I'm inspired by it because mm-hmm. there was so much mechanical genius that went into making a piece of armor. For example, the waists were actually very, very narrow. So if you look at a historical suit of armor, they honestly kind of look like a modern feminine silhouette because they're very Mm -hmm. like wasp hourglass shaped things. And that had a functional purpose as well as an aesthetic one in that like when you're wearing a hiking backpack, you know, you have that belt that goes around your waist to distribute Mm -hmm. the weight. Same goes for armor. So if you just had a piece of metal hanging from your shoulders, it would be incredibly heavy and your traps Mm -hmm. would be very, very tired. But if you distribute that to the rest of your body, Body by making it really tight at the waist, uh-huh. um, it's a lot more effective of a piece of wearable art. 
totally new information. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like, oh, that's where the silhouette was inspired from. Right. <laughs> and I love how masculine and feminine ideals have kind of flip-flop over time. Like, again, mm -hmm. you look at these armors and you're like, Maximilian the first had the figure of like a Victoria's Secret model because he was hella tall, <laughs> had like a 23 inch waist. It's like amazing. Uh -huh. And that was like hot back in the day, right? Like a yeah. good calf <laughs> was the, like the epitome of male beauty. I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, for, for real, sees like fashion back in the day was like some kind of like loose upper garment and yeah. hose. Like everybody be wearing hose, y'all, because these calves are. That's where it's at. Um, and like, I love that because nowadays, like all these people, especially in video game art mm -hmm. and things like that, they're like, oh, like armor is masculine. It's shaped mm -hmm. like a box. And obviously mm -hmm. if you need to make armor for women, it's gotta have boobs. And it's mm -hmm. like, no dude, take a look at the sources. Mm -hmm. They are looking like real skinny and real fine. So. Calvin posed a question for me about um, when it was done poorly and when it really kind of borderline copying. And the one that comes to mind for me is it was probably in like 2016, 2017, when Starbucks came out with the mini Frappuccinos and they had this really cool like color burst design on the frapp like on these mini frappuccino little glasses. I don't like frappuccinos, but I like that mini cup so much. I was like, I will get a mini frappuccino just so that I can get the cup. Some backstory about it was that like, I think 72 and Sunny did reach out to the artist before, but she either didn't take on the project or there was a miscommunication somewhere that they couldn't get her in time. Um, but they continue to move forward with the art direction and use her color style, her simplicity to really make the design on the Frappuccino cup. I didn't recognize that it was her work because I didn't know she was the artist, but other folks who did recognize her as the artist were messaging her saying like, oh, congrats on your collaboration with 72 and Sunny. Mm -hmm. And that's when she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so it's tough there because when you don't know the context, it looks very inspirational. But when you do know the context, you're like, oh, that's, that's kind of straight up copying to a certain extent. And in the court of law, it was, it was hard also, again, because I think they ruled it as not imitating because it wasn't a, there was no direct motif or element in this, in the mini Frappuccino cup that could replicate a painting that she already had. It was just that like the color palette and the style was very similar. So in a court of law, it couldn't pass as you know, as being imitating. So that, I think that's a case where inspiration was bordering the line of copying and really going into a lawsuit situation, um, which makes it very, very difficult because like what is actually proprietary and what what right. do you actually get to own? But I could think of some uh, specific examples too that I think are good copying or like <laughs> good inspiration. Yeah. So an artist I love is Kahindi Wiley and it's- Oh wait, I, I know, I totally yes. know. I just got so yes. excited. I got so excited. Yes. <laughs> so he basically recreates Renaissance paintings mm -hmm. in every affect, right? Both yeah. in like mm -hmm. style as well as pose, gestures are all yeah. from Renaissance style, yeah. Yeah. but featuring black folks. Yes. And I think that's amazing. Amazing, like, yeah. Yeah, like that's the kind of copying where it's you're using a particular visual language and then appropriating it to say something else 
um, mm. but in a respectful way and in an empowering way. And I guess to give more context is that he is the artist that painted uh, Barack Obama's presidential portrait. This type of painting style was very, very common, you know, like way back when, Renaissance time. And kind of the motif for it or the story behind it is that like a lot of kings and really like regal higher up their males would want to get these grand portraits but obviously they never featured black men or black women in these portraits because you know colonialism and all that hot shit he is this artist that like is taking that same idea and then like putting black males in it to really like give them that regal sense that they are like definitely owed and like deserve and needs to you know help uplift that type of spirit um, and this kind of segues again into this common illustration style that I think everyone will recognize through Instagram um, and a lot of like female artists do it as well. It's like these very vectorized shape layering project or artwork. The artist that I can think of that will help cue in everyone is Jade Purple Brown for the type of aesthetic or reference like visual that I'm talking about. And Calvin hears me bring this up all the time. That type of illustration work is inspired by Aaron Douglas, who is a Harlem Renaissance artist. And he creates these, they're called faucets. Right, these faucets of shapes and overlapping colors and vectors to talk about the stories of Black Americans during the Industrial Revolution. To me, the most amazing thing is seeing it prominent in Black artists' work now. It's sad to say, like, when other artists are calling non-Black artists out on it, it's like there is a story and a context behind it which is why it, it seems like you're copying like there's a line that says like you are copying versus like black artists are inspired because the story behind it really relates and resonates strongly with black artists because it's really tied into their history versus like non-black artists like it's not tied into their history at all so it does feel more like you're just copying an aesthetic and copying a trend I think this uh, opens a really great conversation about how we can borrow from the past as well as kind of appropriate certain icons to subvert mm -hmm. them. But then when does that appropriation become kind of toxic or negative, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I think in many of these examples, especially in Kehinde Wiley, I would not call it a cultural appropriation or if it is cultural appropriation, it is not in a damaging way mm -hmm. because it is borrowing from a group of people, the old masters, who are all white, um, <laughs> who are in no position of disadvantage, right? Mm -hmm. No one's like, wow, Kehinde Wiley's painting's so great, but Rembrandt, what a hack, right? <laughs> like, everyone is praising the source work as well as the quote-unquote derivative work. I, I, mm. It's not the best word for it, but um, the work inspired by it, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think when it's appropriating from a culture or a person who doesn't have that kind of recognition or who is otherwise kind of reviled, you're, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a good look to like call someone lame and then steal their shit and be like, well, <laughs> this is cool now because I have it, right? Yeah. And I think that's the key. Yeah, I, I think Jean and I keep doing this, but we keep bringing in TikTok into these <laughs> into our conversations. And it's the big, big conversation around TikTok, especially TikTok dances, has been this sort of thing about appropriate replacement almost, mm -hmm. which is the idea that these like black creators are creating these dances that end up being changed, altered brief, like quickly by, by white creators and then getting all this attention mm -hmm. and then all the attention is focused solely on the white creator who mm -hmm. had like taken and changed it as opposed to what you're describing, which is like a shared recognition of 
both original and an alteration. Mm -hmm. I love how you were like, let's go from art history to TikTok. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all culture. True. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No, but when you give yourself the time to understand the background of things, because it's not to say like the barrier is you need to know art history, you open the doorway to understanding more than just that visual reference and understanding the people it affects, the community it was driven from, the area that it was coming from everything makes so much more sense in the design and the realm of context and understanding and especially for a brand to like make that brand voice unique is so much deeper and like i think about the project that we worked on with josie where she wanted to really pull references from her latinx background and we're like let's look at architecture then and like the structure of the architecture really contributed to the format of her logo and then the colors from it also contributed to like her brand color palette overall. And so even though we had to do like a quick logo change because she wanted to change the symbolism a little bit, um, everything still worked and everything still like t was like really tied in well because all the references and all the stories behind everything that we pulled was the brand. It wasn't that the mark itself was the brand, it was that the story itself was the brand. So even if she were to change it to like, a pig flying if she ever thought of it like we would be able to spin it to still make it fit for the brand because it's not the mark that really mattered in the end it was just the story had to make sense it, it goes to like the ways that you can be inspired by something right because i think the way that a lot of people think about inspiration is that it is purely a visual thing that you're inspired by like this look of something and i'm inspired by the look of it so i'm going to keep you know i'm going to emulate or kind of take elements of it and do it into my own thing mm -hmm. but you can also be inspired by like much deeper elements like the context and the story um which uh, like hearing a lot of the the examples that you all are pulling up is really interesting and a lot of these art pieces and a lot of cultural elements and a lot of entertainment has this deep rich history and and culture and context that's really important and interesting to know but when it comes to the way that some people are quote unquote inspired by things that kind of feels more like copying mm -hmm. it it seals like you're kind of scraping off that visual portion or like the the top level of things and not really understanding like where where these things have been yeah. born from yeah sometimes i wish i would i would just hear people say oh i'm copying this instead of like i'm inspired by this right because they're, you're taking it pretty directly rather yeah. than kind of riffing on it. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and it, it kind of um, reminds me that there was some controversy around the recent Mulan remake, where Disney was kind of cherry picking all these different elements of Chinese culture. Like Mulan lives in a, I forgive me, I don't re remember the specific term, but mm -hmm. a very particular kind of village architectural style that is of a Chinese minority that is not Han. Um, mm -hmm. And for those of y'all who aren't Asian, Han Chinese are like the dominant ethnicity in China. If you didn't know there was ethnicities in China, there's like a hundred. Um, but this culture is like kind of intentionally erased <laughs> by dominant yeah. Han culture. Yeah. Yet when we move to like the Imperial City in Mulan, then you see all these like kind of traditionally Han mm -hmm. buildings. Um, and the story of Mulan itself is actually way older than we generally think it is. Um, and two, she's actually not ethnically Han, probably. She's more of like a Turkic um, steppe ethnicity. Mm -hmm. um, yet in every retelling, she's Han. Um, anyway, it's, it's white Jesus, white Jesus, <laughs> all this to say, Disney kind of cherry picks all these different facets of different Chinese minorities to create this kind of like mythical China. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've heard some critics kind of 
liken it to in Black Panther when there's sort of like a mythical Africa that is created to create Wakanda because they're mm-hmm. cherry picking all these different cultural references to create mm-hmm. this new culture. And what mm-hmm. the difference that I think in success is that in Wakanda because it is a fictional land, all mm-hmm. these different references and sort of um from wardrobe to style give it life and authenticity whereas China's a real place. Like you, you don't need a makeup what China yeah. looked like. You could yeah. literally just like she is from here and this is what that city would look like yeah. as opposed to just like kind of picking what palace, what hut from mm-hmm. every different kind of um minority in China and then not giving them any recognition, right? <laughs> um it's hard to talk about that kind of appropriation when you're an American diaspora kid. Mm-hmm. Um I found a really interesting term that I did not know what it was <laughs> of it before, but it's mm-hmm. source lander and it refers to when people try to like weaponize people of the home country against diaspora people. For example, mm-hmm. in Ghost in the Shell when they cast Scarlett Johansson and yeah. every nerd was like WTF her name is Major Kusanagi like <laughs> what is this ish surely there is some Japanese woman on the planet who will mm-hmm. take this role but people in Japan were like it doesn't bother me and so mm-hmm. people in America were like why does it bother you Asian Americans look mm-hmm. at those Japanese people they don't care i find that this is actually very fascinating for me because how how is it different because mm-hmm. we are removed from that place of appropriation right do we mm-hmm. get to have an opinion is our opinion as authentic as the people over there right who mm-hmm. are quote quote closer to the source and i guess that just comes again from a place of how are you treating the people in this context and then mm-hmm. how are you treating their aesthetic if you are mm-hmm. treating the people like dirt but yet being like oh the art of your homeland is amazing that's a problem <laughs> whereas yeah. i feel like Source landers don't have that kind of uh dissonance because mm-hmm. they live in the material. They are not threatened by other people taking their stuff because they mm-hmm. are surrounded by others in their community who are affirming its value, right? Mm-hmm. So that is such an important distinction and why I I was really glad to have come across this to kind of solidify in my mind why I was angry and why I was allowed to be angry mm-hmm. at this kind of seeing this thing in the world. Yeah, and then I I also um I I come across that defense a lot about like ref- like you said referring to the the homeland quote unquote. I think it has its own like in addition to being like a logical fallacy. I think it has its own rooted racism within it. This idea that oh these are the true Japanese people and if the true Japanese people don't like feel that it's offensive then you other Japanese people or you like other Chinese people don't need to feel offended because like right. we went to the real we went to the real <laughs> yeah. Japanese people it's yeah. like are you like I my feel like your feelings are still valid right um um especially because um like you said uh it's it's that they have other things to go to they they probably have a live action version of Ghost in the Shell they might right. have a musical i know that exactly. there's musical. a resident well cuz they have like a resident evil musical or something yeah. in, in japan and or like something like they have so. an attack on titan movie which was yeah. not good but <laughs> they made it so yeah it comes down to it's a huge representation thing and representation of asian american or of asian people in the us it's a different like yeah. beast than representation of japanese people within japan or chinese right. people within china exactly mm-hmm. yeah It's kind of getting into like different levels of processing information 
for inspiration, right? There's like the first level of inspiration where it's just visual and people can say it's copying or not copying. Um, but it's kind of like the responsibility of the artist, of the client, of the collaborator to get into the second level of information, you know, and like what's the context, what's the community, like what is it actually representing? And then the third level is just like the true understanding of it, you know, understanding it in terms of like context of the culture that it's affecting and really who it's catering to. Because um, again, kind of like referencing back to what Ellie and Calvin were talking about with the Ghost in the Shell movie where, you know, it's it was made for American audiences, right? So like we feel a different way as Asian Americans being like our kind of like, you know, our, our thing being represented by like an American cast versus like if it was to be like for a Japanese audience, like it's totally different, right? Um, and that's why there's like so many remakes, you know, and it's each of our own due diligence as a creative person to look beyond just just the visual inspiration. This is actually a good transition because I'm, I'm, I have this one question written down. In the country that we live in, is it possible to have true unambiguous appreciation of a minority culture? I guess an example that I think of when it comes to this is like Moana. You know, it had elements of Polynesian culture and people from the Pacific Islands. They brought in all these people but it was still a movie made by a multinational corporation headed by white people, mostly staffed by white people. Is it, is it appreciation or is it possible for that to even happen to an oppressed or minority culture? Mm-hmm. I would say that that's still an authentic appreciation. I mm-hmm. don't necessarily believe in people like staying in your lane. Like as soon as a white person touches a project, it is no longer like, okay, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like um, allyship is real and fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in a country like the US where I think, I was about to say we pride ourselves on this value, perhaps more we aspire to this value, um, <laughs> that we're like highly collaborative between cultures, that we're a melting pot yet leave room for people to kind of appreciate the uniqueness of their own upbringing and background. Mm-hmm. So I think multinational teams are fine. Um, I'm more like, oh, we can talk about capitalism on another podcast, <laughs> but that's like the real Disney issue I have. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably did it the right way, at least mm-hmm. in that example, where they really mm-hmm. cast people of that culture as best they could. They really consulted people of that culture, and so it was really a collaborative process. Mm-hmm. It makes me confused why Mulan went so wrong, because yeah. theoretically you had all the resources to do just as good a job and yeah. did not. So no, who knows? <laughs> you know, it's. I, I'm glad you brought up Mulan again, because there were moments in Moana and in Mulan that like made me go like. I don't know how I feel about this, where some parts felt overly theatrical, you know? And right. I was like, are you are you playing into that a little bit too much? And then there were moments where I was like, no, this feels to me very appreciative. Like it was really well done in making you feel like overall wholesome with the story. Like I was gonna cry many times in Moana. Um, mm. So there were, I feel like that part was successful in capturing like the love people have for their culture and the love people have for the stories that get passed through their ancestors. And then there are just, you know, some moments where it was like, I don't know if they need to be in lay skirts on the ship like that, you know? Like, I'm not so sure about that, but I don't have the understanding or like the history behind it. And it just made me think about like the Chinatown in LA where I'm like, you did pick the most extreme theatrical representation of these cultures. So we might need to put a little flag on that, but you know, yeah. yeah. 
same with Mulan, where it's like, ah, I see you did your research on Chinese people that we yeah. like honor. We like family and we like phoenixes. <laughs> so you really hit on everything yeah. you need to hit on. Um, if you couldn't realize my sarcasm, I did not appreciate how kind of like tokenized these themes were. It was like her only personality trait is duty, and I didn't like yeah. could be a person beyond that, which is why I thought that the cartoon did such a good job of showing her as a full person and、I、also really、so、representing like the diaspora、mm-hmm. zeitgeist because、yeah. it was this conflict of like, do I do what resonates with me and it is my path, or do I do what my family kind of wishes of me and hopes、mm-hmm. of me,、um, which I think every Asian kid really feels.、Yeah. So I、yeah. thought that was just such a.、Yeah. Richer story than yeah, what they ended、yeah. up with. I just like how our conversation about like inspiration versus copying has just turned into like we are so mad at Disney for like <laughs> <laughs> for you know shortcutting us on Mulan here. Yeah, I think going back to what Ellie was saying, or like the, her direct response to the question, which is, is it possible to have true appreciation of a minority culture? I think I was on the fence on this, but after hearing Ellie talk about it, I think I am leaning more towards it is very possible, and I do I do think Moana was a good example of it. The question of whether it will be well received、mm-hmm. or like universally beloved is, you know, there's I think there's going to be because of trauma and because of like collective generational difficulties、mm-hmm. and Collins, blah blah blah, all that stuff, history.、Um, <laughs> there will be people who will be hurt. Yeah. Like whenever you represent a minority culture in in this way,、mm-hmm. but I don't. I think that there is. If you can separate from and like, kind of examine the process, you can find like, you can find agreement with the way that they did things. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily that the way that it might have turned out. I、mm-hmm. guess. I think the other thing that contributes to it, Calvin, is the impact afterwards, right?、Mm-hmm. Where your intention is to appreciate, but the impact is like, if you only as a company profit off of it, then I don't think it falls into the awkward line of like, are you appreciating? Are you appropriating? But、mm-hmm. if you profit off of it, and then like. You know, basically donate, give, or so, like send the money to the culture, like the minority culture that's been affected, that's been like erased type of situation to help preserve the story, the history, the context. Then I think that goes into true appreciation,、um, and it's again very much up to the folks in charge, the creative in charge, and who's going to take the initiative to to really. Advocate for it, you know, which is not an easy thing to do. Right.、Mm. I feel like the best medicine is just ask someone who knows more than you, whether、yeah. that's a member of that culture, whether that's an expert. Just like run it by people, because if you have an icky feeling, chances are they will too. <laughs> yeah. Or they will. Or best case, they absolve you of it. They're like,、mm-hmm. absolutely not. You're fine.、Mm-hmm. Like,、um, for example, for me, when I'm adapting armors. Um, European history is kind of tricky in this day and age because、mm-hmm. so much of it has been appropriated by the alt right. Like、mm-hmm. the whole like Crusades thing,、yeah. anti-Muslim sentiment is super icky.、Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to tread lightly around the like white nationalism and toxic masculinity、mm-hmm. when you're drawing from that particular era, especially martial history.、Mm-hmm. Um, but I have acquired so many armor nerd friends that I'm just like. <laughs> Guys, this symbol looks a little bit like the Iron Cross to me. Is anyone reading it like that?、Yeah. Is it is it yucky? Like, has anyone、mm-hmm. used like Polish hussar armor for an achy thing? Just let me know. And I think in that particular instance, people are like, no, the poles were fine. Like, <laughs> 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 they're okay. You can, you're、uh-huh. welcome to them. 
Um, but I, I just gotta kind of keep myself honest like that. Yeah. Like, for example, when I was designing the Lorica logo, I it was actually originally going to be called Collider because I wasn't going to focus just on armor at first. It was just mm -hmm. gonna be like a pan geek thing. Yeah. And I liked the idea of like different atoms smacking against each other. So I'm like, I mm -hmm. like that idea of energy and electricity. So I had designed a logo where the L's were like vaguely lightning shaped. Mm -hmm. um, and my friend was like, girl, that is the SS logo. Do not go with that girl. And I'm like, oh man, I'm so glad you stopped me right there because I did not see that. Um, so just another pair of eyes, another pair of ears. You just can't yeah. go wrong. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ellie, for joining us. Is there anything that you wanted to plug before I close out like everything? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So um, it'll be a lot of repeating myself because you can find Lorica Clothing at Lorica Clothing on Facebook. You can find Lorica Clothing at Lorica Clothing on Instagram, <laughs> as well as Lorica Clothing at Lorica Clothing on Twitter, which I don't update very often because social media is hard work. <laughs> yeah, totally, but, yeah. Uh, and that's Lorica spelled L-O-R-I-C-A and then clothing the way yes. that you spell clothing. Correct. <laughs> yeah. If there are any proper Latin people out there, I think the correct pronunciation might be Lorica, but I do not know enough and I've said it this way for so long that it's Lorica. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you all for joining us. We really appreciate you stopping by to check out the podcast. Yeah. Uh, we're available on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, sign up for the Studio DBJ newsletter. Uh, you can go on our website, studiodbj.com, scroll a little bit, and then you'll get a, a thing that asks you if you want to join in. Subscribe to our feed for updates whenever the podcast comes out. Uh, the next episode we're going to have is in two weeks, and it'll be about whether or not being talented is enough to be successful. So that'll be a really interesting oh, combo. Yeah, super interesting. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, we really appreciate you coming by one last time, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Oh, and thank you, Ellie. <laughs> <laughs>